The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is diaper dude, father, author, and entrepreneur, Chris Pagula. Chris is the diaper dude and author of The Diaper Dude, The Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving the First Two Years. Uh, Chris dives into the first two years of parenting and furthers his deeply held belief that you don't have to lose yourself when you become a father. Uh, Diaper Dude covers everything from bonding, baby proofing, and when you'll have sex again, to toddlerhood tantrums and tag teaming with with your partner to cover all the bases while staying, and he's got uh, somewhat sane. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. So you're, you've done it all. You've, you, you're a dad, you're an author, you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're an expert. You've got three kids, as I understand it. They're no longer in the, it's not from one to two, but now they're in teenage years. But Diaper Dude, I guess, be, started when you first became a dad, I assume, right? Uh, so that was a, a life-changing experience. So let's start with that. So how did you become the Diaper Dude? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's funny because the, the concept started 17 years ago when my son, oldest, was um, born. Actually, when my wife was pregnant, she came home one day with, I kid you not, like a dozen flowery diaper bags. And I took one look at them and I'm like, where's mine? She said, take your pick. And I, was, I said, no way am I going to carry one of those bags. So that really started the um, inspiration for carrying a bag or finding a bag for myself. And there really wasn't anything on the market for that. So I figured, what the heck, I'll make my own product and see if people like it. And eventually, it just sort of formed into um, a company that took off. And before I knew it, uh, I was working full-time on developing, getting the product into stores and uh, moving on from there. So the, pro- the, the company actually launched 14 years ago, even though I started the concept when my oldest was born. It was by the time I really got it off um, the ground because at the time I was still an, I was an actor. I went to NYU and I graduated from Tisch School of the Arts and moved out to Los Angeles to be an actor. And this just sort of fell into my lap. So it's the same. Okay, so you were an actor. You def, well, I guess obviously you changed roles and you <laughs> went right into yep. <laughs> producing the, your, your wife is having a baby. Then you decide, and so you're producing these. They almost look like, because I was online, diaperdude.com, they look like man bags. Or yes. That guys wear exactly. now. Yeah. Right, right. They, so they were don't... designed not to look like diaper bags, just to be more utilitarian and just a product that, you know, you can take with you and not feel like you are screaming, I am a parent right now, you know, um, something that you can feel comfortable and confident with. You know, it's interesting you should say screaming, I am a parent right now, because I notice a lot. I go back and forth between Albany and, and New York City, and I notice in the city very often dads are... Dad, the nannies are there during the week, 
sometimes moms. And on the weekends, though, then you've got the dads, and Mm -hmm. uh, they are pushing the carriages. They've got a toddler. They've got a a baby. But they kind of like to – you know, I'm just observing. Sometimes I feel like they really want to scream, look at me, I'm a dad, look what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm just like this super guy. A uh, little different than the moms. Uh, you know, it's a different kind of a feel. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that, but, you know, they're just sort of out there, like really, Absolutely. Uh, proud, you know, as if they're accomplishing something, maybe even more than what they think their wives are doing. Well, you know, I, th- I think it's true. I think that there are definitely more dads involved, even, like you said, on the weekends, but even, you know, it, being in Los Angeles, you almost see it daily. Um, it's funny, because when I first moved out to Los Angeles, I was thinking, doesn't anybody work? Because everybody's out and about during the day, but that's a whole other topic, yeah. I think, in itself, yeah. or Los Angeles. But I, I think you're definitely onto something there. I think men are more excited to be taking on this role as a dad, and yes, to be sort of uh, validated that you are a dad and that you can handle this. Um, but it's, it's kind of funny, though, because if we look back to, you know, even 10 years ago, the, the role of dad wasn't as um, involved as it is today. And um, I think that there's a large group of dads that really take pride, um, mainly I feel like in that blogging world of just really stating their um, their uh, stance on being a parent and, and they want to be perceived as equals to, to mom. But I think that there's, you know, it's, it, we've come a long way and I think we've got to observe who we've been and what we've done in the past. And we weren't always this involved and we kind of were the bumbling idiot for many years, you know. So it's a shift that's occurring, which is exciting and new. And um, I think those dads that are newer and younger are sort of excited to sort of flaunt it and to say, I can do this. Because it's a huge yeah, shift I would in, in where we've been. There has been a shift, and it probably did start, uh, as you say, probably about 17 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Everything began mm-hmm. to change. What do you think some of the differences are for being a diaper dude, I don't, as opposed to, I was going to try to find another name for the mom. Uh, is it different when you're a dad taking care of, besides the Besides the man bag, okay, that's symbolic, but I mean, and practical. But then, right. what are some of the issues? I mean, what are some of the emotional issues that are different? I mean, you cover some of that in the book, so let's talk about some of those things that may be more difficult for you. Sure. Than, yeah. Well, I, I I think overall for men, um, it, it's a little well, not a little, but very much so, a daunting experience when you first become a dad because I think for moms. There's that natural connection that occurs, obviously, because the baby, you know, is growing inside of you. And, and I think in general, we just view moms as maybe more sensitive. They're just natural caregivers and caretakers. Um, but that's slowly changing as men are taking on the role to become more involved. And I think that, like, through my books, uh, before this book, I had a book out called From Dude to Dad, and it was a diaper dude guide to pregnancy. And it was giving tips for guys on how to feel connected while entering into this pregnancy experience because for the nine months you're really kind of standing on the side and you want to get involved to feel like you're a part of this experience. So I think that emotional disconnect is difficult for men and overwhelming. We don't just have a part in this, uh, in this process when the baby arrives. It's really from the beginning when your partner um, you know, finds out that she's pregnant. And, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street here that uh, your assistance and involvement is really important. So building that confidence up from the very beginning, I think, is important. 
and just by practice and actually taking involvement and doing the actual act of parenting, you build your confidence and it almost becomes second nature eventually. But we all fail and make mistakes and that's part of the process. Well, I think parents all fail and make mistakes, and we have certain yeah. expectations, and they don't always get met. So on both sides, one of the things you said that I really like, because I think you really have an understanding, and maybe this is just a small point, but I get a lot of parents, a lot of men, and uh, I'm not who are, talk about we being pregnant, which always bothers me, having been pregnant three times and knowing yeah. that my Right. Partner was not pregnant. We we became parents, but we were not pregnant. And I think I, I always want to clarify that uh, because in, I think yeah, that believe me, if guys were to get pregnant and if it were possible, we'd probably be the biggest babies. So you'd be the yeah. Like, uh, that could be the uh, end of the world by the <laughs> exactly exactly. Yeah, I, I so admire my wife for going through it three times, and she didn't have an easy um, time the first few. So um, I definitely am thankful. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I do remember the third time thinking, why did I do this again? This is like the most, how could I have done this? I mean, I was like in the throes of, of, uh, of giving birth. But anyway, so, okay, so <laughs> it's not easy. And now I, I have three boys and also just a new grandmother and I have a grandson. So I'm an oh, expert awesome. on the boys. Yeah. Let's talk about, I mean, each kid is different. I mean, each, you know, in terms of how they relate to you and to your partner. So, and you've had three, um, but the book describes, generally speaking, what it's like to go through for those first two years. Um, What, like, which I, which one of your children would you say was the most difficult? Maybe some of the specific issues that you had with each one of them as a diaper dude. You know, that's very interesting because I think that definitely the first was the most challenging, but it's probably because it was the first experience overall for both my wife and I as parents. So it's kind of like the first one you get to make all the mistakes with, the second one you get better, and by the third one, you know, they're on their own and, um, you know, they're probably the most (laughs) (laughs) well-adjusted and because you've had little to do with them. But, um, you know, I think, like, if if we think about the first, our first son, um, I think we as parents were so excited and almost over the top in, I don't want to say over the top involved, but it was kind of like even when we were considering um, with sleeping arrangements, we were like, oh no, we're doing attachment parenting. Like he has to be in our bed. He has to be a part of us everywhere we go. And, you know, we're going to be that type of parent, how much we love our child. And then the second one comes along and you realize, okay, this is not really possible to give up so much of your space when you have a second child. So my daughter went immediately sleeping into a crib, and it was like a whole other experience. And then our third child, um, he was actually born a preemie, and that was the most frightening experience, actually coming home without having your child, um, you know, after the delivery process. And it was like we had a loss in our life. It was very strange. And he actually was the most well-adjusted in the sense of just, mellow from the beginning and in and it's amazing how you can see the personalities of each child as soon as they're born and i'd say like my son with his loud scream shrilling scream he's very passionate he's very strong-willed um or stubborn um and pat and you know he knows what he wants my daughter i think learned from him thankfully my son was younger so he got to develop his own way um so they're all influenced by each other but we've I think we've really learned from the first parent, from the first child, how to be more mellow by the third one. 
Yeah, you are. And some of it's just circumstances. You have to be. I mean, just environmentally speaking, and then you're right. Then you just sort of relax and calm down and realize every little choice you make isn't going to to affect the rest of their lives. But like with the third, with the preemie, because my grandson was a preemie, so I'm interested. Like, he was how many weeks early? He was seven and a half weeks um, early, I believe it was. So he was in um, the NICU for three and a half weeks. Yeah. And... He was like it's it's funny because when he was born he was strong, but he still needed that support with his lung development. Um, yeah. But they even noticed the nurses noticed from the very beginning how mellow he was, and they were I mean the nurses are so unbelievable, unbelievable and so talented and so caring. But they were able to assess his personality from the very beginning, and it's true today. He's just such a easygoing um, child. It's really interesting. Well, it's also interesting also in terms of, well, in terms of your book, in terms of fathers um, uh, participating, because I know specifically on the NICUs now, they used to, you know, they take the babies out of the isolates and they put them on their skin-to-skin or kangaroo. Right. I forgot exactly what they call it. But they've done recent studies now, which kind of goes along with your, you know, dads being involved, where the babies are also put on their fathers or their skin to skin and that they do better and progress better and eat better and grow faster when they have when they do when they through when they do that with both parents i i don't know if they did that with you then because that would have been a while ago but yeah no that was interesting and my wife uh gosh she was like so great because she she educates herself tremendously and she was adamant about the skin to skin and it's interesting being in los angeles you think that they would be very progressive in the way they are, um, you know, in the hospital. But the nurses were kind of against it. But my wife was like, no, this is my child. This is what I know, which is best. And this is what we're doing. So she demanded it. And it was an amazing experience. And so thankful that we did demand that we wanted to have that experience of skin to skin. Because first, the bonding um, experience, but you can just feel that, you know, energy between the two of you. And um, I really feel like that did, like you said, um, help him emotionally and to strengthen just in general. It's, it's a pretty yeah. powerful uh, process. Well, and even if you don't have a NICU or, or, or a preemie, it's smart just to have that experience as a dad. Right. The, the, the touching and the, and, and I mm-hmm. think, I think you, as you said at the beginning of the interview, yeah, whether you're full term or preemie, but it's really important to, and women kind of do this just naturally, hug and right. kiss and mush with the kids. I think for men, sometimes it's a, they have to get into it. They have to feel comfortable. I think you mentioned in the book, you were a little nervous bringing mm-hmm. this new, you know, holding this newborn. Um, and so it's a bigger adjustment, I, I think. Uh, it doesn't come as it- naturally. It's, yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, sometimes as, you know, some men are, could be great at sports, you know, agility-wise and being able to handle basketball, football, baseball, whatever, with such, you know, ease. And then you get this, you know, five or eight-pound child with a wobbly head and you're like, wait, yes. how do I handle this? You know, and it's very interesting to just see how you can feel like you're so incapable. Um, I remember the first time my brother had his first um, child and I became an uncle for the first time. And I remember them handing me their child and all of a sudden the whole neck thing just freaked me out because I didn't realize that they were so weak. And I remember his head snapped back and I caught it just in time. And I thought, Oh my God, I broke him. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so it it definitely um, takes ease and confidence in building 
um, for dads, but uh, it, it's totally capable. You just got to believe in yourself, I think, and get that confidence going. And that's where your partner comes in really um, handy to support you as well. Exactly. Well, you talk about the changing role of dads. Let's talk, I mean, how is it changing? Besides, of course, that dads have, I mean, have a, you know, they're much more involved with their kids as we've been talking about. But what do you, any other ways, like more specifically in terms of dads with, with the, well, with babies, one to two, but also you've had the experience now of one to 17. So how is the role changing? Like if you look at the millennials now with their newborn, with their babies, is it? Well, I, I mean, first of all, if you go back to thinking of how the shift occurred originally, I think we have to credit women for it because they have gone into the workplace of just continuing to um, go to work after even having children, you know, and, and if you add to the um, idea that the, the recession in 2008 hit and a lot of men lost their jobs and a lot of women ended up keeping their jobs. That, you know, really started the transition happening of men becoming more of the primary caregivers. But even more so, I think dads are excited, like, you know, if their children are into sports and they get to feel connected and they're really, you know, involved from that perspective of, you know, taking kids to the sports games and being, you know, uh, as involved with their children in sports. Um, I see many more dads involved in rituals of like mornings before going to work, taking their kids to school and really having that bond, you know, um, going after school or, or at night with between reading with their children or putting them to sleep. I mean, those are certain things that I've established in my family to make me feel like I'm more involved since eventually as my business, which started at home, then took me out to um, my office. I wanted to try to have as much bonding time as possible, so I would make those specific rituals. So I feel like I was creating that bond with my child. With my child, uh, we had a friend who was more of the stay-at-home dad, the diaper dude, and uh, I always remember he would talk about going to taking the baby for the well baby visits, and he was like the only guy there, and the women mm-hmm. would look at him like, what's wrong, you know, with his daughter, like, uh, what's the right. story, I mean, he always felt like an outcast, uh, probably not so now, but I mean, it's, you know, you, you wouldn't just see one guy there, but uh, the expectations were very different. Right, and I think that's like amazing and, and really um, awesome that he was able to you know continue through that process and not feel judged, even though maybe he did, but like just to continue through that because eventually you know that does become the norm and and you see more dads you know taking on that role. So it's pretty cool that basically we're just sort of breaking down those stereotypes and barriers and and making it more normal, which it should be um, definitely. A part of Chris, um, you mentioned because this is important. Like you said, when you started out, you you know you were an actor, then you got into this business, and of course the business grew, and now you have a big business, diaperdude.com. But how do you do? You know, help be at work at this, and let's say, and you have a new baby, and sleep deprivation. I would say is the number one thing that is like mm-hmm. really for both parents, both partners. Um, like, how do you do that? How do you run your business and then, you know, you're up all night with the baby? It's, you know, it is a challenge. And I think that, like, for the first few years, working at home made it even more challenging because my office was basically available 24 hours for me. So I remember at one point, eventually, my wife was like, you've got to cut down your hours and just, like, stop at 
say, 5 o'clock and that's it. No going back to work at 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night because you're going to end up driving yourself crazy and, you know, eventually could get sick or whatever. Um, so I think that it's really important to try to, I guess, uh, schedule and balance as best as possible. And it's almost impossible to find balance. You think balance is not even uh, achievable, especially the first few weeks when you bring a, a, a baby home into the mix. But um, I ended up prioritizing my family first and took more time, I think, to grow my business. And I think it was also worth it because even though I started 14 years ago, it wasn't as uh, topical or, or as popular as it is today. So it's kind of like it was meant to be to be slow and steady. Um, you know, it, it, it's all about, I think, prioritizing and compartmentalizing what it is that's most important in your life. I'm sure my brand could have grown bigger sooner, but I didn't want to miss out on certain, you know, milestones that my children were experiencing. So I needed to be and make myself available. Yeah, so ba- maybe balance isn't the word, but pacing yourself, I guess, is Correct. sort of what yes. I, Yeah, right. just pacing yourself right. and, yeah. This is the same topic, but one of the things about when you first become a parent is that who are your role models for parenting? And and I always notice, and I know it was true for myself and 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 uh, uh, people that I know and colleagues, etc., that it's very difficult to each one of you has a different role model for parenting. Let's say you and your spouse, and you kind of draw on that and they uh, you know, that experience and but they're different and sometimes you get a clash uh, you know with, like you mentioned when does the baby sleep with you in bed or not or uh, mm-hmm. but you kind of look to yeah so how did that fit into you and your parenting as a diaper dude well I, it's very interesting because I feel like I I honestly took a lot of the lead from my wife and because she was so so much more um, involved even from the point of view from reading. Like she read what to expect when you're expecting from cover to cover. And we would discuss it at night or talk about it or she would give me, you know, some information that she learned that she felt was important for me. And I think it's a, a lot about compromise and taking, you know, following, being able to follow one's lead and then having those discussions. I think as parents, it's so important to really focus on the foundation that can easily get put off to the side, which is your relationship with your partner. And you need to be able to compromise at certain points and be on the same page, especially when your child becomes a toddler. And we've been, you know, uh, victims of good cat good cop, bad cop, you know, where even at this point, my daughter being 15, she'll ask me a question. And I'm like, you know what? Let's wait till we get home with your mom. And you can ask me that question in front of her because I have a feeling she's going to say something different, you know, and I, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page because there's nothing more difficult than having a child play one parent against the other because obviously that puts a, a wrench in your own relationship because then the two of you get upset at each other for not following through or having the same, you know, idea. And you feel like, wait, I thought we were on the same page from the beginning. And, you know, it just takes one yes or no to throw that off balance. That's true. And I agree with you. But she, you've had 15 years with her. She's, <laughs> you've had an, you know the game, right? Oh, but, yeah. After 15 years. Yeah. But in the beginning, you kind of don't know the game. You know, you, you, start, you as you said, I guess, well, you felt very confident that your wife knew what she was doing and she was, she actually gave you a tutorial, what to expect when you're expecting uh, in the book. Right. But, um, 
sometimes that and you know doesn't always work because one both parents feel that they they know what to do or how to do it uh but i guess you know perhaps you're right most of the time i think um, i would say that the man or the father sort of t- sort of goes with what his partner his wife I think if, if, says. if we're smart, it's like kind of picking your battles, you know, unless you're really passionate or the health of the baby is at risk. Um, it would be smarter to sort of take the lead from the one that's more passionate about it is stating your case, you know. Um, and I, I just, I feel like, like with my wife and myself, we're really, um, you know, fans of supporting one another and being able to work that out hopefully aside from the children, obviously not in front of, although it is, you know, as children get older, it's very important for them to see that if you do have differences that they can be worked out. But, um, you know, it's kind of like the pick your battles type of thing because it's just, I think it's, it's about being on the same page and supporting at the end of the day. And that's what's, you know, you're in this together. Um, we're not trying to prove one thing over the other. Um, so it's really about, you know, following each other's lead. Chris, what would you say was your biggest mistake? If you had to, if you're going to tell us what would be the <laughs> biggest, biggest mistake, mistake you made. You know what? I got to say, I think like having a daughter, dads with their daughters can like bond so well and so um, amazingly that I may have like spoiled my daughter way too much. <laughs> and I'm like trying to untangle <laughs> that, that web because she could definitely have me wrapped around her finger and it drives my wife nuts where I sort of like kind of cave to, to what she would like or want. Um, and it's hard to undo as, you know, she's now 15. But, um, but on the flip side, you know, it, it, it warms my heart knowing that we have such a strong, you know, bond. So it's just challenging when it comes to, you know, establishing uh, boundaries and, and discipline um, when you know that you have such a close bond with one of your children. Well, I think that's a good point. Uh, the sons, father-sons are different, very different relationship than father-daughter. Uh, mm-hmm. And she can, <clears throat> she has a special bond with you that's different than with the boys, I assume. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But it doesn't sound like it's a huge mistake. It's just something you have to be, you're aware of the boundaries. And, and I think that's important. Um it's mother sons are very different. Uh, I, I don't have da- um, mother daughter, so I only know the mother sons and mother and grandmother and grandson. So um, right, which is a whole different thing. Right. I mean, I think that <clears throat> it, it's very interesting. Something uh, actually, a teacher told us to uh, yesterday. We were um, having a discussion after one of my daughter's um, theater performances, and it was really interesting. One of a comment that this teacher made is that as a parent. They don't tell you the pain that your child goes through that you experience as a parent is almost worse than what your child experiences. And it's so true because you, you watch them go through difficult times and you just, just feel that pain even more so probably than what they're feeling. And I guess it depends on how sensitive of a parent you are. But that could be like a real downfall as a parent because it confuses you and you just want to protect your child, yet you need to have them go through this experience so that they can learn and develop into the individuals that they need to be and to, le- you know, to be able to take that as an example to move forward. Um, so I think that you know, maybe that falls into that question of almost, I don't want to say it's not caring too much, but that accessibility to emotions 
can be overwhelming that you've got to allow your child to fail and to grow and to be able to step back because you don't want to be that helicopter parent for sure um, because your child needs to be self, um, you know, to be independent. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, We have a minute left, or actually 30 seconds left, and I think you're absolutely right. It's a good sort of note to leave on because I think that is a a big issue today with parents, Mm -hmm. uh, just you know that that helicopter parenting not allowing your parent your uh, child to navigate the waters themselves when they should be and and not stepping in and fixing everything uh right. which i think is different than it was maybe 20 years ago not going quite in the right direction so i think that, that that's that's a big issue i agree with you anyway it's been great talking to you uh diaper dude the Ultimate Dad's Guide to Surviving the First Two Years, Chris Pagula, and DiaperDude.com if you want to buy one of those diapers without uh, bags, without flowers on them. Um, and I would imagine probably a lot of the women are buying the bags now, too. I don't happen to like they, flowers, but uh, they do enjoy I like the your bags better. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Chris, thanks. We're going to uh, take a break right now. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author and physician, Dr. Dennis Durrell. His new book is Your Health 
Care Playbook, Winning the Game of Modern Medicine. Most Americans are facing high premiums and spending more of their money on health care. Dr. Durrell uses the National Football League like a Rosetta Stone, using simple football analogies to help you get the highest quality care at the lowest cost. He says that many of the new changes to health care are similar to the best practices of the NFL. Dr. Durrell is a physician and national medical director of acute services for IPC Healthcare. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, Dr. Durrell. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, Healthcare is a huge issue, and I, I, I don't know if I know, you know, I, we, we need an explanation for that, uh, obviously, the Affordable Health Care Act, you're an expert on that, but what's the comparison between health care and the NFL, which I know nothing about, so let's start with that. What, what's? <laughs> well, that's, that's a great question. You know, I did a fellowship back in 2011. This was, you know, after the Affordable Care Act was, you know, being formalized, as you know. And it became clear, I was at UC San Francisco, it became clear that the new world of healthcare was going to change based on value. And there were going to be hospitals that would compete against each other, literally for scores on certain outcomes, and they would win or lose money of Medicare payment based on that. And uh, at the time, I, I started to realize that teams were going to be critical to the future of healthcare. care. Uh, there was a movement to put the patient at the center of healthcare, care, a lot like the NFL puts fans at the center of what they do. And also, the NFL spends a lot of time evaluating uh, players, and they understand what value or quality they get per cost of what that that player costs. And so I began to realize that the NFL has a lot of parallels to what is going to be important for the future of healthcare. And you can take it down to the individual patient level. When patients are paying more out of pocket and they're literally footing the bill, then they're really going to want to be that best general manager of their team and make the best value choices. And then finally, uh, in my interaction with the NFL, safety was a huge issue to the NFL, and they've come a long way on that. And safety is a huge priority for healthcare. And so I was able to draw the parallels of safety between the two and interview a lot of experts in the NFL. So I felt that it was not only interesting and understandable, there were literal parallels that would be important between the two worlds. Give us examples of that, like in terms of, okay, that's the overall explanation for the the, the uh, similarities or the comparison between the NFL and uh, patient care. Uh, can you put that in a context for us? Yeah. Well, you, as you know, as you know, because you're an expert in healthcare as well, obviously, um, healthcare decided that the way they would improve things is to borrow from Toyota manufacturing car manufacturing. In fact, people are getting certified in lean principles. And so uh, you're also aware that for safety, healthcare has been borrowing from aviation planes, and it also has been borrowing from GE Sigma and doing black belts and in these improvement processes. So it's not like healthcare hasn't looked at other industries to borrow from. So that's number one. I just said, why not borrow from the NFL? For example, 
in in hospitals we hand off patients. So I'm a doctor, and then I have my partner cover for the weekend. I do a handoff with that doctor, and when you don't do a good handoff, you can fumble and you can make a mistake. And so that's the classic example where we can use an NFL term that everyone understands what a fumble is. Everyone in healthcare knows what a handoff is. And I simply said, wouldn't it be easier to understand some of these NFL terms than what a Kazin event is, which is a Japanese term? Uh, another thing is that I walked around hospitals about this time uh, across the country, and everyone was doing huddles. Well, everyone knows that a huddle is a major part of an NFL game, and so I think that the terms are more accessible and understandable, but yet they are extremely relevant, uh, the actual analogies. So do you use this in your practice, in your medical practice, medical business? This is this is abs- this is this NFL comparison and how and is it do you, do you get better results in terms of treating patients or managing healthcare systems by using this yes. analogy? Absolutely. I use it, but remember that I'm over 19,000 doctors across the country. And so when you say do I use it in my specific practice? I am not actually seeing patients at this time. I'm, in, I'm helping all of our practices and hospitals across the country improve quality and cost. And so on a macro level, yes, we use it. For example, we believe that healthcare is teams of teams, right? So it's almost like you've got the NHL, a hockey player showing up with an NBA player with a basketball and a football player showing up with his football and they're trying to play a game together. That's what healthcare is today. It is so fragmented. The systems don't communicate. The teams don't communicate. And so one of the things that we teach is that we need to become one team of teams. So we need to unite and join the teams to be one. Uh, And that's a key element of what we talk about. And by doing that, we have had tremendous results. And don't forget the team around the patient. Everyone talks about the doctor-patient relationship as if it's a one-to-one. In fact, in the new world of healthcare, it's actually the patient's daughter or the patient's father or the patient's caregiver. And it's the team around the patient that's helping to make those decisions with the patient, with the healthcare team. And so we've got to unite these teams into one team. And that's something that the NFL does extremely well. In fact, when I interviewed some of the executives in the NFL, they talked about uh, the Atlanta Falcons. The president said, Dennis, when we change a lunch for the players from 12.15 to 12.30, everyone in our organization gets an email. Healthcare doesn't have that kind of coordination. And so the idea of uniting the teams into one around the patient is something that has been very effective. Talk to us about a specific hospital situation, because I think people are able to understand it better when you say, okay, you go in and you uh, are talking to whoever, you know, the, the, the hospital, um, and you're trying to go in there and make things uh, work in the way that you just described, uh, and to draw the teams that work on it, one team. How do you actually do that? Because they're well, so right. I think the whole saying, system is fragmented. Yeah. Right. Well, you start by saying, 
uh, I read Dr. Durrell's book. He said, I'm the most valuable player of the team, that the team centers around me. And I would like to make sure that I have a head coach here in the hospital. Who's my head coach? Who's, who's that head coach overseeing all of my different doctors? Now, typically, as you know, it could be a hospitalist. I'm a hospitalist, and that's a lot of what our company does. But it could be a primary care doctor that actually goes to the hospital and sees patients. Either way, you want to establish who is my attending physician or my head coach here in the hospital. And then that needs to be written on the whiteboard in your room. And as every doctor comes in, as every person on the team comes in, you want to center it around that whiteboard. Write their name down and what's their role. And pretty soon, we're focusing the team together around that head coach, and, and we're now uniting the team. And if we need to pull in somebody else, it's going to go through that head coach, that hospitalist, or the primary care doctor. That's actually how it's done. You know, it seems so, as you're describing it, well, it makes so much sense, and it seems so simple. What are some of the, when you try to implement that, which I think is obviously is what your book about, it's a great idea, or, but what are some of the, what's, do you get any pushback? I mean, do you get, as you're saying, it may not, you don't know who the head of the team or the one who's, it could be the patient's mother or father or somebody who is the one who organizes all of this uh, or is the head coach or whatever. Um, traditionally, we've thought about it as being just one physician. Do you get pushback? I mean, do you get, what, 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 pushback, what, what's the response? There's no pushback in theory. You know, there's no pushback in uh, concept. The pushback is the logistical issue of that, right? And remember, I include, there's more parts to the team. I consider the insurer the owner, right? I consider the patient the most valuable player. I consider the hospital kind of the stadium where it all happens. And I consider the doctors the coaches. So there's more to this team that may not align. So, for example, let's say that the coach, the doctor wants you to have a test but the insurance company doesn't agree with that. Or let's say that the doctor wants you to stay in the hospital two more days, but the insurance company is not in alignment with that. So the problem with this model is that when the key parts of the team do not align, there are problems. But when they all align, which they can, then things work really well. And so to me, the problems come where there's misalignment and also just the logistics of getting the team, it's very hard to get the whole team together for, say, 20 minutes where you've got every specialist and the patient's family all making a decision together. But guess what? There are times that you do that. In ICUs, you tend to do that. When patients have cancer and you're getting a tumor board together and all the specialists around the table, they're now bringing patients in. So we do it occasionally, but it's a logistical problem of the busy day of getting everyone together. So we need to use technology to help us with that. All right, and technology, how do you use it well, to help you, you do, with that? Yeah, you conference call, Skype, you know, you, you Skype in, you conference call, you, you use regular phone calls with the speaker phone on. You know, you're in the room and, you know, you've got the family and the, and the daughter from New York and uh, mom's in Miami and, you know, you've got a sister. Um, I have used in my own family, talking about my father's health with my three sisters, we have used conference call technology. 
And so you really need to get creative about the new technology like that. So in other words, you may, you want to have a conference call with your sisters, as you say, you know, uh, would you, I mean, like you can FaceTime each other. I mean, that would be another way of doing it. Or you're Skyping, or you're using all yes. of these where, yes. where you can, yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting. Absolutely. And I think in the future, I, I don't he- no, in the future, there's going to be more of this. So I think, you know, go to meetings, you know, FaceTime, uh, you know, multi, multi face box platforms for conferences are going to become much more significant in healthcare for the reasons I said. The, the decision making is teams of teams and, it, and it's fragmented. Are there specific hospitals that you can talk to us about that are doing it and doing it well and using all of this new technology? Um, not just kind of piecemeal when it's needed, but the, everything is really in place so it's, it, it's there to be utilized. You know what I mean? There are are there uh, medical facilities around the country that are doing what you're saying and 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 doing it now and have all these teams in place. Well, no, I can't say that. I think that you know we're doing pieces of this uh, at many places, but I can't say one place that has it all together. I think you have to realize that my book came out on on April 25th. And uh, some of the things that I'm talking about are fairly revolutionary. I hate to say that. Meaning, They're cutting edge. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cutting edge. And I think, for example, you've got a lot of esteemed writers like Atul Gwande and other people writing about the doctor-patient relationship as if it's one-on-one, which it has been for many years, you know, since the beginning of time. And so this idea of having teams of teams making decisions is relatively new. There's not a lot of data on that. And so, unfortunately, I can't say that there's a place putting it all together, but I felt like I needed to throw these concepts out there for people to begin to grab some of them and start to do some of them. Yeah. And I I think it's also a matter of changing attitudes as well, because it's difficult for people, for many people, to uh, professionals as well as the people utilizing the healthcare system to not think in terms of, uh, you know, the physician, uh, doctor-patient relationship and not think of, it's, you know, that's an attitude thing as well. Um, and so that has to be changed. Well, with books like yours, obviously, um, that there's a lot more to it than just the doctor-patient. Well, relationship, well, medicine is much more complex. Uh, I mean, I know I had this infection a couple months ago and it was the physician who prescribed this medication a very very strong medication and uh, she didn't tell me too much about it but I went to the pharmacy and I had a consult with the pharmacist because she really knew about the medication and the contraindications and and there were some things that the physician had not told me about. And so that that was kind of an example. That should have been part of the whole thing, I guess, is what I'm saying. You're talking about the team approach. Uh, other people may not have requested a consult with the pharmacist and gotten that information. I mean, that's just kind of a small thing, but that's sort of an example of what you're talking about. No, that's a huge thing. That's the, that's the message of the book. The message of the book is you're the most valuable player. And with that, unfortunately, until healthcare gets there, you may have to be empowered and proactive to keep yourself safe, 
and to be the glue that pulls the teams together. They're not ready for this. They're not all structured that way. So you did exactly what I talk about in the book. Uh, You have to ensure that if you don't feel safe or you don't feel like you've gotten the right information or you're uncomfortable, you need to look elsewhere, whether it's a pharmacist, whether it's a second opinion, whether it's the nurse that comes in the room. So you ask again, you know, was it right that the doctor wanted me to have that test? That didn't sound right because yesterday she said I was going to have this. So what I really am doing is empowering patients to be proactive as you were to make sure the right people on the team at least uh, have the information. And some places have really have it together. They literally have a pharmacist that rounds with every single patient in the hospital. And so there are places that have pieces of this. Even outpatient doctors now are having pharmacists that are partially involved with some of these decisions, to your point. Um, so I think that that is the key message. Until healthcare gets really safe where they need to be, you need to be what I call the safety like that last resort uh, on your team to help yourself. And But one of the difficulties with that is if you, let's say, have a life-threatening illness, let's say you're diagnosed with cancer, and then you're very vulnerable, and it's very difficult to do, let's say, even just what I did, because you are in a very different mindset. You're, you're frightened, you're scared, all kinds of, of emotions. And then you're placed in that position of having to take on the responsibility that we're talking about. It's not easy to do that. So that's, that's right now, um, even though one has to, hopefully is able to do it if they can, but um, that's not the position I think that patients want to be put in which is what your book is all about. You're right, but but here's what I say to that. So my answer is this. If you think about the NFL, all those people I mentioned, the owner, the coaches, everyone else, there's one person that has the NFL players back always and only looks out for their interest, and they're calling the agent. NFL players have agents, and the agents represent them to everyone else, to the team. They negotiate their deals, all of that and they help them, you need to bring an agent to the hospital with you, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your significant other, whether it's your neighbor or your caregiver or your friend, you need to bring someone. When my wife was in the hospital two years ago and had emergent surgery, I spent nine days in the hospital with her on a pullout bed next to her, and that option is available. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have the luxury of having a physician there, But I recommend bringing an agent, just another set of eyes, another person to call a timeout. When something doesn't seem right, call a timeout. Another person to ask a question simply like you did of the pharmacist. So you're exactly right. I don't think patients are always and the most often in the hospital. They're not in a condition to do it. But I say bring an agent, and I talk a lot about that. Yeah, I I think that's key. That is critical. Um, and I, I think many people are able to do that, not everybody. Um, you know, traditionally people who can't do that, supposedly they have social workers like myself there to stand up for them <laughs> yeah. and to help navigate the waters in the hospital, so to speak. But, yeah. uh, I mean, so, yeah, and you, so if it has to be a professional, that's what you have to do as well if you don't have anybody, and, and there are people who don't. Um, no, but literally, no, literally yeah. I, I just want to make a point. I apologize that 
literally there are, as you know, professional advocates. I interviewed a wonderful woman who's a physician that now only does um, patient advocacy. And there's kind of two kinds of advocates, some that help you with your medical bill, medical bill and others who literally come in and they kind of help be that, you know, coordinator of the team. And oh, granted, you, you know, you have to pay them, but I tell a lovely story how she facilitated a situation in the book of an end of life where the doctor wasn't really telling the family what the true condition really was. And having her on the team was critical. So I just want to point out there is a field out there for the people that can afford it. And, uh, you know, there is someone you can actually pay to do some of this. Patient advocacy. So that's a whole new profession for physicians, you're saying. Is this something that they teach in medical school? Is this a course? Is this something no, that this no, no, particular... No, no, no. Most often no. it's not a doctor. It's typically maybe uh, a nurse or uh, social workers, obviously, are a key person that would go into it, but they start a private practice of being a patient advocate. It just so happened that this, this woman was a physician and, you know, wanted to migrate away from seeing patients per se. And she's a beautiful example, though, because she knows exactly what it's like to be the doctor on the other side and not have the time. You know what she said? I get to spend the 30 minutes with the patient that the doc wants, but they can't. And so I do think there's an entire society, there's going to be many more of these people. I'm not sure how many will be doctors per se, but no, I think that's going to be less common um, that physicians actually do it. Uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's, and then that person themselves can be part of what we were talking about earlier when you have uh, conferences with, say, family members who don't live in the same area. Yeah, and they can be on Facebook, they can be on Skype, they could be part of that whole team and be very visible to the the other, as I say, family members who maybe live far away. Very practical. It's a... That's it. Practical. And and it is the person who's doing it. Yeah, they have the time. That's what they're there for. The doctors are busy, so they get the key information. Look, I do this for my family. I've done this for my family for 20 years as a doctor, so I can't tell you how many times I've done it. But the fact that we've identified someone that can do that, whether it's a doctor or not, I think is great, and it's needed, and it's going to be more needed in the future. Yeah, a great book, and as we said, it is a cutting-edge book. We only have a minute left, so I want to – you can buy it Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Uh, and your healthcare playbook, Winning the Game of Modern Medicine, and that's Dr. Dennis Durrell. Is there a website that, that we can direct people to go to for more information about you and the book? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, go to Amazon to get the book, of course, but go to DennisDurrellMD.com. That's my website. I've got a lot of information on there. I'm blogging and, uh, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Terrell. Obviously, a lot of people have been asking me about the health care bill, and I, I do a lot in that realm, too. Um, so I'm happy to update people. And, you know, I went to Albany Med, so I graduated from Albany Med. So uh, I am... I know uh, you did. We I'm didn't a, even get a chance yeah. to talk about that <laughs> because uh, I, I am in Albany right now. But that's next time, Dr. Terrell. We have to get off because they're giving me the push. But um, thanks so much for being on the show today. Dr. Dennis Durrell. Buy his book, Your Healthcare Playbook, Winning the Game of Modern Medicine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.